There must be more to Christmas. I think we're really missing something. Must be more to Christmas. But what? But what indeed? What's Christmas all about? In the 1980s, there was a, there was a very popular television show about uh, policemen. Um, it was an ensemble show, lots of crazy characters called Hill Street Blues. Anybody remember? Some of you, you, like you guys are a younger crowd than first service, I think. So y'all, some of you are going, huh? Hill Street Blues. Never heard of it. Um, it's on late night, so if you're up at 2 in the morning, you can find a copy of Hill Street Blues around. Um, there, were, there was this crazy cast of characters, lots of different kinds of, of cops. And the, every show started with, uh, with the, the cops coming together and the sergeant doing the roll call. Um, talking about the stuff that had happened the previous day, that night before, all the things that they were going to encounter th- that day as they did their police work. Um, the first four and a half seasons until he died, Sergeant Phil Esterhouse was the guy who did the roll call. And if you were a Hill Street Blues fans, fan, you remember that he finished every roll call with some variation of these words. Hey, 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 be careful out there. He always said, be careful out there. Um, this series of messages that we're doing is all about uh, what it could, we could really use the same kind of similar words for us as we think about Christmas. Be careful out there. Don't let Christmas get so consumed with stuff that you miss the manger. Don't let Christmas, but be careful, don't let Christmas get so consumed with busyness that you miss the Christ child who came to re- redeem us. Be careful out there. Uh, this, this today, in this series of messages that are better than something, better than stuff, better than, uh, better than busy, today we're talking about better than safe. Better than safe. Safety is a priority for us at Christmas time, but it's, it's a priority for us all, all the time. We actually kind of live in a world that's consumed with being safe right? It's, it's something that, that we take care of all the time. If you think about it, no, uh, virtually every conversation that we have when people are leaving, what do we say? Hey, take care. Be careful out there. Drive safely. You know, take it easy. Nobody finishes a conversation by saying, hey, take a risk today. You know what? Be crazy. Get, get out on the edge. Uh, do something that's not safe. Nobody finishes that way. But, uh, we, we live in this culture that is concerned about staying safe, and it's especially true when we think about our kids, right? We want to do everything that we can to protect our children from pain, from dangerous situations. Um, and so we do all this stuff to, to try and keep them from that. Um, one of our sons, who will remain unnamed, uh, when he was about 12 years old, we were living in Ohio, um, decided on a day that Deb and I were gone, all the siblings were gone, that a really cool thing would be to go climb on top of the roof of our detached garage. Um, he said, uh, we were talking about it last night, and he said, I just thought it would be a very peaceful place. We, uh, we had five acres, and we were out in the country. What better place to go and find peace than on top of a garage, right? So he gets the ladder, climbs up on the roof. He's on the roof, um, has his iPod. He's listening to music. He's doing stuff, um, and decides it's time to get down. Well, when he went back to the edge of the roof, 
he realized that he had placed the ladder under the eave in order to get up, which was fine getting up, but not so fine in getting down. He couldn't see the ladder from the roof. 12 years old, all by himself, nobody home. So he thinks, what, what can I do? It's too high to jump. Um, I, he didn't have a phone. He, all he had was an iPod. So he used an iPod messaging app and tried to get a hold of, of Deb and I to say he was stranded on this roof. Um, we didn't get the message. So ultimately, he tries the, his siblings. Nobody is answering. He finally sends a message to our son-in-law in Joplin, Missouri. It says, Charlie, I'm stuck on top of the roof. Can you call mom and dad and have them come home and get me off? So Charlie calls us and says, Mike is on top of the roof. We, we come home. We, oh, I said his name. Oh, rats. We have to use first service, uh, not second service, to put up on the web. Anyway, um, sorry about that, my son. He actually said it was okay. I'd tell the story. So... Um, so we're talking about last night, and he said, I, I just didn't know what to do. I thought, I thought I'm going to die up here. I'm going to die up here, and you're going to come home, and there's going to be this skeleton on top of the garage, because <laughs> he was actually on the backside of the garage. He said, you're going to find this skeleton, and you're going to think, what happened to him? We, uh, what, what's funny to me that I remember about that particular incident, we, we told some friends, and this friend, just a couple days later, later sent me an article from a newspaper, a magazine or something, that talked about how important it is for kids as they develop to take risks. Uh, the, the essence of the article said, especially for boys, every boy should own a pocket knife. Um, if you're in here and you're less than 12 years old, you didn't hear me say that, okay? Um, every boy should own a pocket knife. Every boy should, should um, learn how to build a fire, play with fire, you know, do that. Every boy should be jumping off buildings, not buildings, but jumping off high places and do stuff because when you take a risk, uh, you learn what you can do and what you can't do. You, you learn what it means to take acceptable risks, right? Um, better than safe. A Christmas that's better than safe. What do you, what do you think about it? At Christmas time, at Christmas time, we think about safety a lot. Um, you know, if you travel at all, somebody's all the time saying, hey, you know what? Drive careful. Be, be safe out on the roads. That's, that's great advice. I, I had a student when I was teaching at the college in Missouri that uh, came back from Christmas break and his, his family, he had seven siblings, I remember, um, and they had, they had traveled from Missouri to Colorado for Christmas. So they're in a 12-passenger van with his mom and dad, the eight kids, a trailer behind carrying all their luggage, all their Christmas presents that they're going to celebrate w- with extended family. They hit a, a patch of black ice and, uh, and actually physically rolled the van Trailer trashed, all of the presents gone, all of the stuff is gone, family completely fine. But ever since that, I, I think, man, when we travel, oh, you've got to be careful when you travel, right? In the, in the wintertime, you just don't know what, what's going to happen. Safety is a big deal at Christmas. If you watch Christmas movies and you've ever watched a Christmas story, what are the words that ring in your mind? You'll shoot your eye out, right? Ralphie, don't get that Red Rider BB gun. You'll shoot your eye out. Christmas at safety. If, if you watch television, if you watch the news or whatever, it seems like you can't go 
through one newscast without a newscaster saying, hey, you know what? It's Christmas. Be careful. Check to make sure that no uh, wires are frayed with your lights. Check to make sure that if your tree's dry, you don't leave the lights on on the tree, that you don't leave your house with a candle lit, that you, you know, that, that you do all that stuff, that you don't put the frozen turkey in the turkey fryer. Well, you know, you don't do that. That's a bad idea. That you, all this stuff about Christmas, you know, that you don't string together more than three strands of lights on the house or on the tree. Safety at Christmas is a big deal. Make sure that the chimney gets clean. Don't hang your stockings on the mantle if there's a fire in the fireplace. Um, There's a character in the story of Jesus' birth that Scripture tells us um, that did all that he could to create a safe environment around himself. And interestingly enough, it was not a pretty sight. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Um, if you've got the North Point app, uh, go there and you can follow along there. Uh, if you want to take a, pew, a Bible out of the back of the pew in front of you, that would be great. This character's name was Herod. And Herod wanted a safe celebration of Jesus' birth. He was the one who was defining it, but he wanted a safe celebration of Jesus' birth. Let me, let me begin to read in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea... During the time of King Herod, magi wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Pause just for a second. The Herod in this story is a guy who is known by historians as Herod the Great. If you know, if you know about Jesus and you know about the end of the life when he was crucified and, and killed, he gets put on trial with, with Herod. That's a different Herod. That's a different guy. That's not who this is. This is Herod the Great, who is, who is actually a, a significant figure in history. In, uh, in about 47 BC, he was made governor of Galilee, a, a southern part of what we know as Israel now, by, by a ruler named Antipater. Um, in 41 BC, uh, he, was, he was named one of the tetrarchs, one of the four rulers of this area. Um, you might have sometime heard the term Herod the Tetrarch. He was one of four leaders. He was named to that position by Mark Antony. You know that name from history? And, um, and by the Roman Senate as well. Uh, a few years later in 36 BC, there was, there was a guy who tried to uh, usurp a position to take over. Herod, Herod captured this guy, sent him to Rome. And as a result of that, he was made the governor, the king of all Judea. Judea is the area that we now know as Israel. It's, it's that big parcel of land. Herod was in charge of all that and put in place by Rome in order to do that. For the next 37 years, Herod was the king 
of Judea. This is Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great was all about control. That, 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 that's the best description I can give you of, of his reign. He was all about control. He was a military leader, so he raised up an army. Um, he, he did things to fortify his position, and he was known historically for building incredible things. I think he built 11 different fortresses um, in, in the land of Israel. Some of the, thing, some of the places that you might recognize, um, he built a palace on the top of Masada, Got a picture there. Um, there are there, there are remnants there, um, uh, ruins from the palace that he built on Masada. He built that palace so that if ever there was an uprising, he could go there and nobody could get to him on top of Masada. Um, he built a, a palace outside Jerusalem called Herodium. And uh, in a similar kind of way, if you look at it, he built it so that it, it wasn't able to be attacked very easily. It could be very easily defended. He had a palace there about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, he built up the city of, of uh, Caesarea Maritime, which is on the, on the sea, on the Mediterranean Sea. And that city was critical because it was a port city. It, it allowed him to have access, uh, quick access to Rome. It allowed him to, to have his power spread out and to have control over what, what um, other ships came into the area. Um, it, was, it was a, a huge place. Uh, and again, lots of, of ruins there, uh, lots of archaeological digs that have been done. And probably the thing that Herod the Great is, is maybe most well known for is that he rebuilt the Jewish temple. Um, in, in Jerusalem still, there is the wall, the Wailing Wall, if you've heard that, seen that picture that's in the top left, that's a wall section from the temple that Herod rebuilt, the second temple. And in the lower left-hand corner, that's a visual description, a uh, 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 drawing of what the temple would have looked like. And if you start to think about that wall being just one section of that, it was a massive undertaking. Herod the Great was, was this incredible builder. Verse 9. After, they, after the wise men heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was, where Jesus was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. For Herod, a safe Christmas meant one without Jesus at all. He was a threat. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Herod wanted him eliminated completely. Safe for Herod meant being in control, being in power, not having to mess with anything or anyone who might threaten his position of power. Anything that jeopardized that had to be eliminated. As a military leader, forget about Jesus, as a military leader, Herod ruled with an iron fist. Any threats, real or imagined, were eliminated. Historians tell us that during Herod's reign, he killed his wife, his brother-in-law, three of his sons, 
and 300 military leaders that he perceived as a threat to his position. There's a reason why Matthew in the beginning of chapters two says that when, when the wise men came and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That it says he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It was a scary thing to cross Herod, to threaten him. Before he died, Herod offered, uh, Herod issued two separate commands. One was to kill his son who was next in line for the throne to take his place, and the other was to kill a a whole host of Jewish leaders, the elders in Jerusalem, so that when he died, the whole city and the whole nation would mourn his death. Herod was all about control. He wanted safe, and so he wanted to kill the baby Jesus. He didn't want any threats, didn't want any annoyances, didn't want any disturbances in in his plan, in his life, in his control. Even though we aren't political leaders, we try and create a similar kind of safe sometimes at Christmas time. We try and remove the risk and the inconvenience that the King of Kings might bring to our lives. We try and control our circumstances so that we can have a safe Christmas. You know, visually we have up here, I don't know how well you can see it with the chicken wire, but we, we have this, this sense of a fence that's around the tree, uh, chains, locks, a safe. We put stuff in our life to shield us from the baby who came to an open manger where everyone could see him and have access. We do stuff to limit people, to limit their access to the control that we have in our lives. We avoid discomfort so that we don't have to deal with it. We don't use soldiers to keep people at a distance. Instead, we often use sarcasm or put-downs to just push people away. We don't want to experience the pain that's associated with Christmas in the past, maybe for many Christmases in the past. So we avoid people. We avoid places that remind us of those times of pain in our life. Maybe somebody that we die, that someone that we loved died at Christmas time. Or a big fight happened in our family. Or the police came and took someone that we loved and, and, and took them off to jail at Christmas time. And so we just say, you know what, I'm not doing Christmas. I can't handle it. I'm not, I'm not doing it. It's safer for me emotionally to not do anything except just go through the, the surface level emotions. We decide that it hurts too much to buy presents for nieces or nephews or grandkids. Maybe because we can't have kids or there's been pain or death. So we simply opt out. We, divide, we, we decide that it's safer to avoid the pain rather than to confront it. Maybe it's not even trauma related. Maybe it's just insecurity. It's safer to opt out of the Christmas thing than it is to risk giving a present and have it rejected. It's, it's, it's safer to go, and buy, to go crazy and buy lots and lots and lots of presents for people that we have broken relationships with, thinking that all that stuff will kind of smooth things over and make it better. Somehow we think that it's safer to fill every moment of our schedule with Christmas parties and celebrations. It's better to do that than to face the reality that deep down in our hearts, we're unhappy. 
Maybe we don't really know Jesus who came to earth in the manger. Somehow we believe that it's safer to not deal with our sin at Christmas because that would spoil the season. So we stay in that relationship, that affair, that, you know, that sleeping with a man or a woman that's not our husband or our wife. We keep putting off getting help for our addiction. We think, you know what? The counselor's going to be too busy at Christmas time, so I can't go and work through my stuff in the way that I need to. Like Herod, we try and eliminate the stuff that would bring us to the only one who can really bring us lasting peace and hope and joy, restoration. Jesus came for something better than our ability to create a safe, pain-free world, a place where we're in control of everything. Jesus came to make Christmas better than safe. You know, Jesus didn't choose safe when he came to earth. When Jesus was born, it certainly was not safe. For the God of the universe, the one who created it all to take on skin, flesh and blood, and be born to a young girl and a man who weren't even married, that, that wasn't safe. The God of the universe put on skin. Think about that. Knowing that he would experience pain that he would suffer, that he would grieve. He came understanding that he would die in this place in the most humiliating circumstances. Betrayed by a friend, rejected by his own people, rejected by the spiritual leaders of his people, the, the people that were there to help people connect with God. They would, they would push him away they would betray him. He came knowing that he would end up naked and beaten alone on a cross. Sentenced because of false charges that were brought against him. He had no control over his circumstances except to talk to his father and pray and to face those circumstances. If Jesus had wanted to live safe, he never would have come to earth. It was too risky. There was too much potential pain. There was too much discomfort, too much hurt, too much disappointment, too much vulnerability. There was a follower of Jesus in the first century, uh, a guy named Paul, that, uh, that became a follower of Jesus, and, and, and much of the New Testament was written by him. Um, a significant part of the book of Acts tells the story of his life. One of his companions actually wrote the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 21, um, it describes this, this experience that Paul had um, with, with, uh, with the Christians that were there in, in this particular place. Acts 21, beginning in verse 10, says this, and, and this is his companion who's writing this. He's a part of this process, a firsthand eyewitness. He, sa- he said, after we had been there, and there, if you look in Acts 21 above that, is the city of Caesarea Maritime. It's the great city that Herod the Great had built. After we had been there in Caesarea Maritime, a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not ready... I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to, to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Understand this encounter, what happens. These people who love Paul, this prophet comes and says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going you're gonna to get, uh, get thrown in prison. You're going to get bound up. And, um, and they say, Paul, don't go. It's not safe. It's not a safe thing to go to Jerusalem. And they try and convince him over and over again, it's not safe, Paul. And Paul says, safe? It's not about being safe. It's about being in a place where God can use me to help other people come to know him. It's about being faithful to God's call on my life for people's lives to change. Don't miss this. The goal of our lives is not safe. Safe is not the goal. Life transformation is. God put us in place here so that he could shape and form us, so that he could transform us from the inside out. That's so much better than safe. He put us here so that we would allow Jesus to have full control of our minds and our hearts, our actions, every aspect of our lives. Not so that we could live in a life of comfort, shielded from any kind of pain, any, any kind of uh, bad relationships. Um, please, please don't misunderstand me in this. I, I'm not saying, I'm not talking today about um, being safe from physical danger. That, that, that's not something that we need to worry about. We need to be concerned about that. That's, that's an obvious thing. We need to be aware of potential threats that are there. When we, when we travel, we, do, we need to watch out for the black ice, obviously, all that stuff. We need to have healthy boundaries in toxic relationships. Um, we need to avoid when, when there's physical danger for us that comes with people that, with whom we have a relationship. But simply living in a safe bubble is not the goal of our lives here on earth. What I'm talking about is the things that we do to insulate ourselves the things that we do to keep us safe from being hurt emotionally or relationally, the things that we do that limit the work that God wants to do in us and through us, the work that God wants to do to transform us and change us into his image. He created us for something better than safe. We create a safe world around us. We we put the chains up, we put the fence up, and we keep people at arm's length because they might look inside us and see that we're not really living out the values that we talk about. We avoid conflict. We keep ourselves so busy, so busy that we can't think about the things that really matter in our lives. We, we live sometimes like spiritual porcupines, we want people to come close, but man, if they get too close, we start those needles pushing to say, eh, stay back, stay back. Safe, safe is to say no to every invitation at Christmas time, every opportunity, without any consideration that that invitation may be for an appointment that God has set up for us. 
Safe is to eliminate every imposition, every inconvenience from our Christmas schedule because we believe that we know what's best in our lives and in our schedule. Safe is circling our spiritual wagons, protecting ourselves from the outside world and living as Christian hermits with our Christmas music and our movies and the Hallmark Channel. Safe, safe can provide comfort, but not growth. That, that kind of safe is not really safe at all because it endangers our souls. It endangers the way that we live here on earth. What's, what does it look like? What does it look like to live out a Christmas that's better than safe? I don't, I don't know what it means in your world, but here's my, here's, here's my conclusion. When we live a Christmas that's better than safe and we come to the manger, all of a sudden we see with fresh eyes, with wonder and amazement and awe that the God of the universe would come down to earth to rescue us. We can't get there if we just go through all the stuff normal like we do every year, not thinking about the magnitude of that reality. Seeing Jesus is who he said he is allows us like the shepherds, it compels us like the shepherds to go and tell everyone, you've got to come see what we've seen. You've got to come meet who we've met. What better time than Christmas to forgive someone who's wronged you? What better time than Christmas to heal a broken relationship? What better time than Christmas to talk to those family members that you haven't spoken to since that thing happened all those years ago? What better time than Christmas to let someone into your life, even though you know you may get hurt? What better time than Christmas to tell someone who loves you, you know what, I need help. I've got a drinking problem. I have an addiction. I'm angry. I'm dead inside. I feel hopeless. I stink as a parent. I want my life to make a difference. What better time than Christmas to have that kind of conversation? What better time than Christmas to say, I really want to figure out who Jesus is and what he can mean in my life, what it means to give him complete control. The safest thing, the safest thing this Christmas is to stay isolated, to not ruffle any any feathers to keep people at arm's length. My encouragement, don't settle for safe this year. Take a risk this Christmas. Get out of that safe zone. Jesus came to give us a life that is better than safe. It's a life full of risk. It's a life full of wonder, a life full of amazement. It's a life full of potential failure, but it's a life full of growth. It's kind of like riding a roller coaster. Incredibly scary, but also incredibly exhilarating. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's, it's a story of four children who are transported from, from our world into a different world called Narnia, um, a world where animals can talk a world where uh, uh, an evil witch has, has cast a spell over the land and it's always winter 
but never Christmas. Um, When the children, Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan, find themselves in Narnia, they encounter this family of beavers. It's a place where animals can talk, and the beavers begin to tell them all about Narnia. As they're talking with the beavers, Mr. Beaver says, and and, um, I'm going to just read from the Chronicles from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe right now. Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one that turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you can remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got that feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king, the lord of the whole wood. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's stand together and sing.